I didn't recognize this until this morning, but today stands in the liturgical calendar as Christ the King Sunday. It is the day when the church celebrates her risen, victorious, and reigning King. Christ the King Sunday is a feast that marks the end of the church year and stands as a monument to the end of all things. The day when the servant king rescues his people from their oppressors. When evil and oppression and sorrow is made no more because the king is on his throne. It is in the name of this king that I speak tonight, and it is with his authority that I relay this message to you all. Jonah said, this is the word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. This is the decree of the king for you, his anxious and waiting kingdom. In this psalm, we're drawn to two truths, two truths that seem paradoxical, seem contrary to each other. If you're familiar with the term dialectic, it's two truths that don't quite mesh up but make each other stronger. This is a good example of that. But the two paradoxical truths bear witness to the character of Christ our King. If you look here in the first verse that Jonah has read in Psalm 113.1, we see a call to worship. And this call to worship is based on the next seven, sorry, eight verses that demonstrate to us the principles that we call divine transcendence and divine eminence. Transcendence is what we might call majesty. It is the idea that God, the King, is lifted up from us. He is radically different from us. And he holds eternal and infinite authority over the lives of you and I, his people. The second truth that seems very contradictory to the first is what we call divine eminence. It is the humility of this great king, his nearness to us. It's the idea that as we, his kingdom, are seated in wood pews or behind wooden lecterns, that the king is with us and he cares for us. He's not the distant, faraway God of deism, but that instead he is very intimately involved with people as frail as you and I. So let's look at the first section what we're going to call the call to worship. In our liturgy, we have this same pattern. The first thing we do when we gather together is we are reminded by the liturgist that as a church we must worship God. Specifically, the psalmist calls us to worship God for his character. Now, we may 
like Moses in Psalm 90, or like in the reading of the Ten Commandments that we have just accomplished, worship the Lord for His works. We may worship God because He is the one who brought us out of the house of bondage and out of the house of slavery. We may worship Him like Moses does, like I said in Psalm 90, as the one who is before the mountains, the one who's been our dwelling place in all generations, who formed the world and the earth, who is from everlasting to everlasting our God. But in this section, the Lord is not praised for his works, but for his eternality. The Lord is, the, the psalmist calls us to praise the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. Do you remember the Great Commission when Christ our King sent out his kingdom? He said, make disciples of all nations. Go to the ends of the earth to set up the praise of the Lord. And that's what this is about. The call to worship extends to men and women, children and old people who are from Europe, who are from North America, South America. Brothers and sisters from Africa and Asia, from this day and for every other day to follow, to praise the Lord. This is not the praise of the insular community of an isolated theocracy. This is a call to worship of a multifaceted, multi-ethnic, timeless people. A people that bear witness to the fact that their king reigns over all the earth. But specifically, this psalm moves past its call to worship and into the reason for worship. This is the theme of all great preaching, the theme of all of our, of our singing. This is the theme of our existence. Why do we worship the one who has called himself Yahweh? And more specifically, Christian. Why do we worship the peasant who was hung on the cross? Why do we worship this one who said that he and Yahweh are one? This radically counterintuitive kind of worship. Certainly we can worship him because he is the supreme being. Because he is the deity who created us, who is the source of all existence. Yet this is not the primary theme of worship in this psalm. Certainly in verse 4 we see the majesty of the Lord. The psalmist said he is high above the nations and his glory is above the heavens. But this reality simply serves the psalmist to ground his general purpose in a higher reality. You see, we all know that the Creator is glorious. 
We have all seen and known him as the cosmic despot who rules over the universe with the word of his power. St. Paul has taught us that all of us have seen God in his creation and are held accountable because we have rejected him. This is the attribute I call transcendence. We might commonly call majesty. Because God is the highest reality of which we can conceive, he is worthy of our worship. We need no one to teach us of God's transcendence, of his majesty, and of our overwhelming incompetence in front of him. We do not need a teacher to tell us that the Lord is God, that you and I are simply dust. Where we need a teacher, however, is to learn that this God does not stop here. This God is not the far-removed despot who reigns over us like a tyrant, who leaves us hopeless and dreading him. We need a teacher to reveal us the humility of God, the mercy of God, and his compassion. And that's what Psalm 113 sets out to do. Look with me in verses 5 through following. The psalmist asks the question, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high? The answer is no one. There is no one who is like the Lord. But in verse 6, the question is expanded and says, Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, but who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? In other translations, you'll see this. He'll say, Who is like the Lord who humbled himself to look upon heaven and earth? In verse 6, we see this contrast of majesty and humility. This is eminence. This is the nearness of God. Because this is not the God who is distant from us. Rather, the psalmist calls us to worship a God who knows us and who loves us and who is intimately involved in the world he has created. God made us to have fellowship with him, to see him, for us to see him as our blessedness and our reward, our satisfaction and our joy. I know Ben speaks quite often of the creator-creature distinction. It's the idea that God and humanity are infinitely separate. We cannot see God because he is so far removed from us. And we are so insignificant in comparison. Because God is so distant from us, because he is so hidden within his infinite majesty, he must reveal himself to us. The revelation of God is his humbling. Our Westminster Confession calls his humility condescension. We think of condescension, we think of looking down at someone 
belittling them, treating them as inferior or insignificant. But that's not the way a loving God condescends to meet us. God condescends to meet us in the same way a mother humbles herself to play hide-and-go-seek with her children for the hundredth time in a week. God humbles himself to speak to us like an old man running to meet his prodigal son, entirely undeserving, entirely below him, but it's done out of love. Because when we understand who we are, creatures brought from the dust, and we understand who he is, the one seated on high, whose glory is above the heavens, we start to see revelation not as the simple unfolding of, revel- of information, of a God dumping news on us, spewing out things about himself. And we begin to see revelation as an act of compassion. An act where the great and mighty God looks upon the destitute, looks upon the ones whose society has rejected, looks upon those who don't deserve it, and says, that's the one I want. And certainly it's easy to see ourselves as the ones who are destitute and marginalized from God and from his kingdom because of our sin. But God has a special compassion on those who we reject. God has a compassion on us as a, on humanity as a whole, to be sure. But God has a specific love for the marginalized, for the weak, and for the rejected. God loves minorities and the disabled and the poor and the barren. God loves those who the church sees as sinners and whom society sees as useless. That's why the psalmist draws our attention to the poor, to the needy, and to the barren. Not because they are less than us, but because these conditions in ancient Israel were seen as objects of great shame. Those who were poor, particularly those who were barren, those who could not have children for the covenant, were cast out from the community because they didn't fit in, they were not whole. They were not the kind of people you wanted to be around. If you remember Hannah in uh, 1 Samuel, Samuel's mother, she was barren. And though her husband loved her, we find her weeping in the temple because her nation and her culture saw her as inferior. You may remember uh, Lazarus who stood outside of the rich man's gate, who was rejected by this upstanding member of society simply because he was poor and diseased. These people, 
even, even more so than today, in ancient Israel, were seen as less than human. They were seen as objects of scorn, people to be rejected. In our society today, you may think of black people in a predominantly white culture. You may think of homosexuals marching in the pride parade, or perhaps of the refugees arriving at our border today. These people who perhaps by personal choice and sin, or by medical reasoning, or simply because they're different, come to the church and they find a place where they are cast back into the dust. They are pushed from our doors and we see them as less important than us. And the psalmist says it is precisely these people that God has a special affection for. Because it does not say that God looks to princes and saves them. He does not look to the wealthy and saves them. He does not look to the joyous and the included and the loved and saves them. Surely he does. And praise God for all of my privilege and all of my sin he has saved me. But God specifically goes to those whom society sees as unimportant. He goes to the poor, the homeless, the drug addicted. He sees them lying in the dust beneath the bridge under 40 bypass. And he raises them. But he doesn't just raise them to be seated with us. He raises them to be seated with princes. Our, our Lord is so merciful that he sees the rejected and he makes them royalty. The Lord God looked at the barren Sarah and the barren Hannah. And rather than seeing them as cursed, rather than seeing them as something to be avoided and cast away, he gave them children. He accepted them. He accepted the ones whom we cannot accept. He gave the barren woman a home made her a joyous mother of children. In church, we have failed. We have failed to live like the king whom we serve. Because though we help the poor, though we uplift the barren, and by God's mercy we do these things, How often do we see those whom we reject without compassion? How often do we look at our relatives and family members and rather, rather than seeing them with compassion, 
we find shame in them. We look at the unbelieving, we look at the sinful, we look at those who are politically different than us, who have a different color of skin or a different choice in lifestyle. And we are ashamed of them. But praise God, that is not the way that our King is. He sees those whom we are ashamed of. He sees us who are ashamed of ourselves. And He loves us. He doesn't see us as refuse. He doesn't see us as belonging in the dust. He sees us as belonging at a table with the prince. Inevitably, someone who hears this is thinking, but I'm still poor, and I'm still barren. Can I trust the God who makes these promises? The God who says that this is his character when my life does not match up. Maybe you'll ask, like I have asked, has the word of God failed? Because I asked this question of this psalm at a point in my life when I was abjectly poor. When I was wondering if I would be evicted and wondering if I'd have enough to pay for food that week, that month. And I found myself asking, has the word of God failed? And this questioning that I have wrestled with comes from a misunderstanding of the text. It comes from a message, not from the king who speaks good news, but from a liar who only speaks bad news. The one danger of this text is to make it overly physical. To say that in the kingdom, there are no poor in the dust. In the kingdom, there are no barren women. There are no men who have lost children. If you have faith, then you will be wealthy. You will be joyous. And this is the error of prosperity preachers. An error that leads us to despair or to pride. The other danger is to overly spiritualize the text. And in the process, to overly spiritualize your problems and God's promises. Ultimately, this makes light of that, which is, of that which oppresses us, of that which marginalizes the weak and the poor. And ultimately, it says that your suffering does not matter. This is thinly veiled Gnosticism. Your body means nothing, your suffering means nothing. But the gospel offers another way. See, our king does not speak bad news to us. 
our King delivers a gospel of good news and of hope. Certainly the author of the psalm expected God's blessings to come when poverty was eradicated, when barren women birthed children, and when weak men were strong. But on, the, but on this side of the incarnation, and on this side of the life of King Jesus, we can see more clearly than the psalmist ever could. The focus of this blessing is not on its physical or spiritual fulfillment. The focus of the psalm, the blessing that it speaks, is on the God who has humbled himself to look upon us with compassion. The blessing of this psalm, and indeed the blessing of every scripture, is that the majestic God not only looked far down on us, not only reached far down to lift the poor from the dust and the needy from the ash heap, but the blessing of this scripture is that the high and glorious majestic God came down to sit with the poor in the dust, to be buried with the needy in the ash heap, to weep with the barren, to weep with the grieving, to be marginalized and oppressed because he was weak and poor. And he did this in spite of our shame. Because though we, though we may look at the poor and the barren and the outcasts and the minorities and the refugees and be ashamed of them, our King, whose throne is above the nations, did not see their shame as something to be despised, did not see their marginalization as something to be derided and did not see the way society values them as a standard for how he should act. But rather he saw their shame and took it upon himself. He saw our poverty and was poor with us. He saw our grief and he was made the man of sorrows. Church, your hope is not found in your blessings. Your hope is found in the fact that your King came to be with you and I who are dust, who took our shame upon himself so that we may sit with him Sometimes we sit with the prince in the dust. But one day, because of his resurrection, we will sit with him in glory. You and I will sit with the prince of peace because he has not despised us. He has not been ashamed of us. 
because he loved us. And he demonstrated this love for us by being made shame for us, by taking on all of our poverty and our barrenness and our suffering and experiencing all of it on the cross. Sometimes the king seems far away. Sometimes we don't feel like we can be seated with princes. But here he is. This is the feast where the poor are seated with the prince. This is Christ the King who gave himself up in shame for the ashamed. This is the gospel. This is hope. This broken body and spilled out blood is the kingdom come. And it is the redemption of this horrible sermon and a wonderful, wonderful mystery that is God made us. Blessings be to you all. And remember that God is not ashamed of you, but that he loves you and has compassion on you. May God have peace on you.